Well, first and foremost, you need to know who you are. You need to know what your values are. You need to know what your own goals are. You need to align yourself with people who are like-minded to a degree, but people who will challenge you. So you want to be around people who are equally ambitious, who will push you, who will encourage you, who will keep you accountable. You said that you want to do X, Y, Z. You haven't done it. They'll call you out on it and you won't feel like you're being judged. You won't feel like you're being shamed, but you'll recognize this as an opportunity for you to get your act together and grow. Welcome to the Diving for Pearls podcast. I'm your host, Miss Gina P. Nelson. On this show, we will feature women in the UAE and across the globe who are breaking ground in their industry while at the same time transforming the cultural landscape. The women whom we will feature here on this podcast are in many ways analogous to pearl divers, women who have taken calculated risks to uncover and harvest pearls of wisdom, insights that have led them to illuminate their pathway and the pathway of others. These women are thought leaders, innovators, visionaries, women who embody the spirit of the founding father of the UAE, His Highness Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al Nayan. We invite you to listen in, take the plunge, reflect on the poignant stories of courage and resilience while delving deeper into your own journey of self-discovery and exploration. Pearls lie not on the seashore. If thou desires one, thou must dive for it. Anonymous. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Diving for Pearls podcast. We would like to thank everyone for tuning in at each episode of season one. We are in our second half of season one, and we really want to say thank you to those of you who have been sending in your gracious words, telling us that this podcast has brought you some insights and has helped you in navigating your way through your journey here in the UAE and beyond. Today, we are honored to have a guest on our show, Miss Lydia Andrews, who hails from Canada originally, but is here in Abu Dhabi, working as a wealth advisor and wealth and mindset coach. She is the founder of Love Yourself Financially, a company whose overarching goal is to provide economic development opportunities to women. She offers a range of financial services from wealth coaching to wealth planning to investment advice, retirement, and estate planning. Her overall mission is to help women across the globe to learn about the importance of wealth building and actualize their financial goals. And you're going to see from our conversation today that Lydia is very, very passionate about helping people across the globe from various nationalities find bespoke solutions for increasing their wealth. And before I introduce her, I just want to give a shout out to three individuals who actually referred Lydia to us. We have Kai Charles, who was on episode nine. Thank you, Kai. We appreciate the support. Yvonne Matengwa, who was in episode 13. Thank you, Yvonne. And last, Mayawa Adawake, 
And Mayawa will be featured in our November 24th release. So thank you, Mayawa, as well. And last, I want to say thank you to all those guests, again, who have sent in their words saying that they really find this podcast of value. So thank you again, and welcome, Miss Lydia. Thank you, Gina. It's good to be here. Yes, I'm excited to have you because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite things to talk about is money, because I know a lot of us are looking at ways in which we can increase our wealth, especially since COVID has impacted us in so many different ways. So welcome again. So Lydia, I just want to start with unpacking first your background, because I know wealth management was not initially your field of study. So can you just take us through where you started after college and then what brought you to wealth management and wealth coaching, please? Sure. So for my undergrad, I actually studied political science and law, and I concentrated in international relations thinking that I wanted to work for a global organization that was supporting development in countries and communities around the world. And then it was in my moving to Ghana that I realized that that wasn't necessarily the path that I wanted to choose. Yes, I did want to make an impact. Yes, I did want to see people improve their economic situation, but I didn't find that that would be the right path for me. And so I had a lot of ups and downs in the time that I lived in Ghana. I worked in the NGO sector. I worked in IT. I eventually also worked in energy. I did my master's in energy studies and somehow eventually found my way into finance. I I can't say that it was a conscious decision to become a financial advisor, but now when I look back, I can see how it ties in with the goal that I have had for myself and the kind of impact that I've wanted to make. So it's kind of like self-actualization in a sense or self-fulfilling prophecy to a degree. I wanted to make an impact. I thought I was going to do it in one way, which was working for a global organization. But I'm finding that I'm able to make such an impact now in advising people, but specifically women, on how to invest and educating them on earning wealth, building wealth, and preserving wealth. Thank you, Lydia. So I know you said it wasn't necessarily a pivotal moment that you had, but you knew you were passionate about helping women build wealth. Going back to when you were thinking of making the transition, you mentioned the goal. Can you just share with our listeners what that goal that you had for yourself that kind of prompted you to decide, okay, maybe I can help other individuals with this as well? Okay, so if I take it back, this was just some self-reflection I had done, some goal setting I had done in my early 20s, and just thinking about the life I wanted to have and the kind of impact I wanted to make. And so it was at that time that I realized I wanted to make an impact because in developing or in contributing to seeing economies grow and building up the middle class, Communities are supported, families are supported, jobs are created, and ultimately, there's almost a trickle effect if it's done well, when, let's say, I set up a company and I'm hiring people to work with me, then they have money to take care of their families, and if they have any ideas that they want to implement and start their own company, then they'll be able to do so, 
and then it'll go on and on and on, kind of paying it forward in a sense, but not in a just being overtly generous, but by providing opportunity. So I always had that in mind. I guess I did veer off on tangents here and there, but thankfully doing that process of self-reflection was really important. And I think that that is what my why has been. You know, I, I'm sure you've heard the term start with why. It's an amazing book. But then when you know what your why is, then you're going to have great guidance and direction and you'll come back to it one way or another. Thank you for sharing that, Lydia. I do want to unpack a little bit of that. So you talked about it was your goal. You had some goals in mind and obviously making an impact was important. I want to go to your childhood a little bit and your formative years. What would you say it is about how you grew up, the family you grew up in, that led you to think, okay, I can do something bigger than myself and helping other people? Was there anything from your childhood, anything from your parents that you think you were taught as a result of growing up in your family? I think overall, just being taught about kindness and, kindness and the importance of that. But I think the first moment that really stands out to me was when in high school, I, well, two things, actually. One was writing a paper on sweatshops in, can't remember which Asian country. That was the first essay I had ever written. And I remember being completely blown away, realizing that these people are in this situation through no fault of their own. And then also around that same time, probably the next school year or so, I did an internship at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And at that time, again, the same principle or the same idea that people find themselves in situations that are not their fault. The way the world works and the systems that are in place is such that there are going to be people who will be worse off. And so it's not really a matter of, I'm not necessarily trying to change the whole system as one person. If I can do that some way, somehow, then that would be a miracle. But within the system that is already flawed, it's broken. How can I support the people who are more vulnerable and the people who need more support? So I think for me, that was the most, impactful moment for me and that really had an impact on what I did later on because then in university a couple of years later I and some friends started an organization called Students Against Human Trafficking so we worked on raising awareness raising funds to support a lady who had been trafficked and again it's just the same theme over and over again because unfortunately the world is in a fair place you know and Fine, you can't change people, you can't change the world, but you can still support people who have found themselves in difficult situations. Thank you, Lydia. That's very admirable, supporting individuals who are vulnerable and may not have the access to resources that we do have. You said that your family taught you the value of kindness. Can you go back to your childhood, to your home situation and unpack that? What do you, can I ask, uh, what do your parents do? Sure. Um, my dad was running a grassroots organization. That was an aside thing, something he was doing in Ghana while working in tech. My mom now works in development and then growing up again, also working for a government, working in 
I guess, various types of projects that did also have an impact on the people who are worse off. I feel like in our situation, we weren't necessarily the ones who were in a difficult situation. Sure, it must have been difficult for them to move from Ghana to Canada to start up a life. But when I think of being vulnerable, I don't think that was the case for us. But I do recognize that from a place of privilege to a degree and being compassionate and lending a hand. These are, these are things that we were taught to do and to support each other and the importance of community. You know, I, I can't think of, of one specific instance in childhood growing up. Maybe this is something for me to dig into a little bit more deeply. Thank you. I, I do know in a lot of African nations, community is extremely important. Individuals, the collective community, looking out for each other and supporting each other. So that makes sense that you were taught those values um, very early on. So it seems as if money wasn't necessarily a scarce resource for you growing up. Is that correct in saying that? I don't remember it being so. As kids, obviously our perception is limited. I remember being more or less comfortable. Fine, I didn't always get money when I wanted to, but I don't ever remember feeling like we were poor or we were broke. Yes, I know parents often say, you don't have the money for that, but I think that's more of they don't want to get it for you, not that we can't afford it. I wouldn't say I had an abundance mindset growing up or it was necessarily an abundant mind, an abundant environment, but it also wasn't one that was scarce. I think, you know, when you're comfortable, you're not thinking I could do whatever I want to have enough money to do whatever I want, whenever I want. But at the same time, we weren't struggling. Okay. Thank you for sharing that, Lydia. It seems as if resources were there for your family and yourself. So I want to reference Ken Honda's book. He's the author, a billionaire, Japanese billionaire and author of Happy Money. And he states that a lot of our beliefs come from things that are deeply rooted in the past, that goes back generations, not even sometimes our parents, but our grandparents. So what can you say that you've learned about money from your parents and your grandparents if they were living at the time you were growing up in Canada? So what are some of those beliefs you had as a young child and now either carried to this day? That is a very interesting question because I do agree with what he said, that there may be many beliefs that have just transcended over generations, some of which we may not even be aware of because often these conversations are not really had in families as, or maybe there's just a lack of awareness to even have the conversation. And so if I'm thinking about some of the beliefs I was taught, I think in a sense, although I didn't grow up in a scarce environment, I think for a while I did have a scarce mentality of thinking resources would be limited or thinking money would be limited. So I think that negatively impacted some decisions I had made in the past. And it's something that is continuously a working process for me. But I would like to think that now I have more of an abundant mindset. I mean, I was always taught one to, you know, pay your tithes and then second to save. I don't necessarily think I was very good at, especially saving was not my strong suit growing up, but it's something that I was taught. I'm not sure if there is a story behind that. That's something I'll have to, to talk to my mom about specifically because she was always on my case about saving. So when I think about the beliefs, I do know more of the beliefs that I see about money within the family. I feel like I learned more of them when I became older, interestingly. 
So growing up, I can't think about something very specific or specific mindsets that we had as a family or that our parents had. But in my case, I think as I got a little bit older and I started making a lot more observations and asking more questions, especially now as a wealth advisor and coach, I'm always picking and prodding and trying to understand the roots of things. And so it's, it's now that things are coming out a bit more as I learn more about family history and all of that. So yeah, it's, it's a, that's a very difficult question to ask because these are the things that I don't believe we discussed in a lot of detail growing up. But again, now with much more awareness, self-awareness and just overall awareness, I am getting a greater understanding of how beliefs, even if they're not specifically money beliefs, but how other beliefs will impact how we handle money and how we attempt to build wealth. Thank you for sharing that, Lydia. I haven't even done a lot of unpacking there in my family, but I know that there's something there. And I'll just give an example real quickly. My mom in particular, I remember we didn't have a lot of money growing up either. I mean, we were provided for. I'm one of 10 kids. So imagine being in the United States. My parents came from Guyana, Canada, U.S., trying to provide for us first generation in the States and first, um, second generation to go to college. And so they did all they can to provide for us. But I remember a few things around money. I remember my dad, he didn't use the words can't, but my mom would always say that's too expensive. So anytime I go in the mall, even to this day, sometimes I get anxiety. I look at the price and I find myself getting a little anxious. Like, is this too much to spend on myself? I definitely would like as yourself to unpack some of the history, even going back to my parents' parents, because I definitely think there's something there. And I have to tell myself, okay, Gina, you've worked hard. You, d- you deserve this. You can uh, purchase this. And the other thing, because my Dad was one of the only persons working in our household for for periods of time, for certain stints, because my mom was pregnant uh, quite often, you know, having 10 kids. So I remember a lot of things that we would ask for. My dad didn't necessarily say he could not afford them, but he would just say not now. So it was almost that delayed gratification, which I hear is good because they've done many studies around delayed gratification and how that can help children be more successful and later in life. So we both have some unpacking to do there, right? Yeah, I agree. Actually, you know what, that point that you made about the no, not now, or it's too expensive, that's not necessarily those words, those exact words were were used, but often giving the impression that even subtly that, you know, you can't get this or put that back, kind of put that in your mind that, okay, I cannot be buying things for enjoyment. And also, I think in the past year, yeah, when I was in Ghana for Christmas last year, I had a conversation with an uncle. So he was giving us a lot of the family history. And I learned that a couple of generations ago, we were all business people, like on my maternal side, on my my mother's, you know, maternal and paternal side, they were business people. And I don't know what happened. And it got to the point where education was valued more than being a business person. I don't know what happened. And I'm very curious because obviously when you're building wealth, in my opinion, you can build wealth if you're smart about it with your business. You can build wealth maybe more quickly 
than you can when you're working a nine to five, you know? So it's interesting to see that there was a shift in maybe, I don't know if there was instability and being a business person. I don't, I really don't know. And so maybe I have to go back and have more conversations with my grandma and maybe she can give me some more answers because I'm curious to see what happened and if there was again, any mindset issues that caused a shift, societal issues, cultural issues, who knows that may have caused the shift from the family being more business oriented to academically focused. It would be interesting to go back. I want to go before we even talk about your, the services that you offer through your company, you're very self-aware. And I think you've spent some time examining your personal relationship with money and developing abundant mindset. Can you share with our listeners some of the work you've done around both developing an abundant mindset and just making your relationship with money work for you? Sure. So I think one thing is just reading a lot, listening to the right people, listening to podcasts that challenge me that will help me grow as a person, but then that also forces me to do some self-reflection. And in that self-reflection, actually implementing what I learned. That is the big thing. Because when you implement it, you actually need to make some shifts in getting out of your comfort zone. So getting out of my comfort zone and the wrong mindsets and the wrong ideas that I had, it's very easy to stay comfortable in that. But being able to shift away from that means making some difficult decisions or making some realizations like, oh my goodness, oh my, what have I been doing? Facing challenges. That's a big one. You know, having some failed businesses and failed financial decisions that I had made and overcoming those. I think those have been some of the biggest areas for growth for me because I didn't have a choice. I didn't want to sit down and sulk forever. I needed to get up and keep it moving. And to be able to do that, I needed to deal with not just the feelings, but also having a plan in place as to how I'm going to make sure that I learn this lesson and make sure I'm not repeating the same thing over and over again, because I don't want to be in that situation. I want to be able to say I overcame this because I learned my lesson. I did the work on myself and then I implemented what I learned and I grew from that. And I also in the process, people are watching even if I'm not outwardly overt and sharing the information that I've learned about myself, people are watching and they're observing because no matter what, subconsciously, your mind is changing. And as your mind shifts, then that's going to come out in the way that you speak and the way that you present yourself. This is such a, a deep question. <laughs> Again, Gina, you got, you're, you're bringing all the deep questions today. It seems like for me, I've had to do a lot of self-work. That's what it comes down to. And it's a lot of reflection and even some journaling, praying to a degree and figuring out what it is about myself that caused me to make those mistakes, that caused me to make those decisions. What part of me had, whether a fixed mindset or a scarcity mindset or a fear-based mindset, how many decisions did I make that were based on fear? And how did that negatively impact whatever decision I made at that time? You know, so it's just been 
on, on the one hand, it seems like a drastic shift, but it's a lot of little gradual shifts along the way. So looking back, it seems like, oh my goodness, I've changed so much, but there are small decisions that I made along the way that caused me to get to where I am now. I agree. And sometimes it says it's just those, it reminds me of Atomic Habits. I believe it's James Clare who talks about these little shifts and changes, just micro changes, basically, that could lead us on the pathway. So I want to ask you a few questions because you said quite a bit in there, which I love. First, listening to the right people. And I know specifically on Instagram, you've referenced this about the individuals who are around you and surrounding you with the, surrounding yourself with people who are really pushing you to grow and succeed. And a lot of us have heard the adage, you know, you're the average of the five people who you spend the most time with. What would be some of the tips you would say in terms of finding those individuals who can push you more and help you and inspire and motivate you to achieve and be more? Well, first and foremost, you need to know who you are. You need to know what your values are. You need to know what your own goals are. And you need to align yourself with people who are like-minded to a degree, but people who will challenge you. They may not be pursuing exactly the same type of goals, but they have the same type of values and they have the same foundation as you in that they want to achieve something. Because you don't want to be around people who are living a life that is very laissez-faire. So you want to be around people who are equally ambitious, who will push you, who will encourage you who will keep you accountable you said that you want to do xyz you haven't done it they'll call you out on it and you won't feel like you're being judged you won't feel like you're being shamed but you'll recognize this as an opportunity for you to get your act together and grow so it's about first and foremost knowing who you are knowing what your values are knowing what you want out of life in general and knowing what your goals are because you need to surround yourself with people who are heading in the same direction that you want to go in. And that just means also, you know, looking at your peers and people are on the same path, but people who are also ahead of you, because there's only so much you can see if you haven't been there, done that. The people who are ahead of you, this is why people hire coaches, people work with mentors. They've been there, done that. They can advise you on how to move forward. I've had to work with coaches. I mean, obviously I'm doing wealth coaching as well. And I think, To one degree, you can look in your peers, you can look within your friend circles, you can look around in your acquaintances and find people with whom you can come together and have that kind of accountability circle or, you know, you have your tribe. But then sometimes it will require, if you really want to level up, you need to work with people that are 5, 10, 20 steps ahead of you who will push you even further than you could do on your own. I like what you said around knowing who you are is the first step. So can you share with our listeners, what has that journey been like for you? I know you said you mentioned you do some journaling, some reflection. Is there anyone or people you could attribute to helping you along that journey of getting to know yourself? You know what? I would say I am very, very, very fortunate to have some amazing friends. Since childhood, I've had amazing friends from growing up in Ottawa to moving to Ghana to moving to the UAE. I've had friends who, one, are kind, two, are transparent, and three, they're encouraging. 
yes, we all have different degrees of what we want in life and different levels of ambition, but they're all people who are willing to tell me what I need to hear, people who aren't shy to put me in my place when I need to be told off, and people who are willing and ready to open doors and open opportunities for me. For example, you mentioned the three ladies in the beginning, Kai, Mayoa, and Yvonne. I haven't met Yvonne in person. She's just someone who we connected on social media. We had a phone call, something work-related. We connected on social media, and we were on a workshop together. Mayoa, I've met her in person once. We worked together. Kai, I've met, I believe, twice. These are all kind of online friends. So separate from the people who are actually that I grew up with that I know very well, I do have kind of an online group of people who support each other. So aside from just my people that I grew up with or that I you know, spent time with in Ghana, I also have an online tribe. And this is a very informal group, just people who I've connected with over the years and we support each other and we encourage each other. But then beyond that, I've had to work with a coach. So I've worked with a coach last year and what working with a coach has done and even working with a therapist has done Again, like you're doing today, Gina, and asking me these deep questions, that's what I paid them for because it impacts the way that I'm able to show up for my clients. I want to show up best for myself, yes, but I also want to show up great for my clients. So I've worked with coaches for that and a therapist for that as well. So it's been a lot of self-reflection for one, then also with the people around me who are willing and ready to tell me what I need to hear, whether it's a word of encouragement or putting me in my place or whatever it may be at that time, and then also hiring people. So the road to self-growth, if you want to call it that, is not linear and can't be done alone. You need to have other people involved in it because the way that you're able to see things differently because someone else has a different perspective and they can open your eyes and show you areas that you're lacking in like your side view mirror, you know, when you're driving, you can't see your blind spots. That's the beauty of having the right people in your life. I agree 100%. I agree with you. The road to self-growth, obviously you have to do the work yourself, but um, you are going to need individuals to help you along the way. I myself have also worked with a coach and this is in the workspace arena, but it's helped me tremendously in all aspects of my life. And I agree with you, just surrounding yourself with people who are going to push you, who are going to believe in your dreams, who are going to encourage you with your ideas, who are going to support whatever your desires are and your ambitions are. and really who are interested in bringing out the best in you. I would like to go to some of your values because I keep hearing them as we speak. You speak about kindness and you've spoken about transparency. Are there any other values, core values that you have? That is a good question. Kindness, yes, is definitely important. And I think kindness is different than being nice because I believe that it's easy to be nice, which is kind of just a superficial act of doing nice things. But kindness comes from the heart and it's genuine. And then with transparency and honesty, that just means that you're going to get authenticity. If I'm transparent with you, that means I'm being authentic with you. I'm, I'm being real with you, you know. And then tying in with that comes trust, of course, and then loyalty. When someone shows you that you can trust them and someone shows you that 
they're going to be loyal to you. That's someone that you can hold on to. That's someone with whom you know the, re- the relationship will be reciprocal. And if someone's showing this to you, then hopefully you have the same values so that you can also be that kind of friend to that person as well. So if I had to pick three, I guess it's kindness, transparency, and loyalty. There's so many other things that I can probably add in there, but um, those would be three of the main ones for me. Thank you. And actually, one of the things I've heard recently on one of the podcasts is Jay Shetty's podcast. And he was talking about relationships. I'm not married, never been married, but it was like advice, top tips for individuals who are married or looking to embark on marriage. And he was talking about values and saying that your values don't have to be the same as your partner's. However, you've got to respect their value enough so that you are able to grow as, you know, husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend and in a friendship. I think that was a valid point. It's not that our values have to be the same because I know kindness, for example, it's one of my values, but if I'm going to list my top ones, it falls in the top three, but it may not be the first one. So I like that you are saying that kindness, which I definitely think we all can focus on, is one of your core values because I think from there, you can do so much to help others, to support others, and really to bring out the best in others. Which brings me to a point because there's always a debate on whether you should surround yourself with like-minded and like-hearted individuals. What is your take on that? What would you say is more important, like-minded or like-hearted? You know, once upon a time, I would have said like-minded. But as I have grown and evolved and just really appreciated the importance of human connection, I think like-hearted is more important. Because when you're like-hearted, then I think everything else can flow from there. But you can have people who are like-minded, but they're like-minded in how cruel they are. <laughs> we don't want that. We don't want people who are like-minded. You don't want to work some, with, let's say, you know, you have a business opportunity and it's two people who are like-minded, but they are both like-minded in how greedy they are. And you're not someone who is greedy. You don't want to work with someone like that. But that is their core value. Maybe they don't view it as greedy. Maybe it's a matter of opinion. But at the end of the day, if you're like-hearted, and again, when we say like-hearted, we're talking about in a positive way, then I think that it will be easier to work with people than it would be to work with people who are like-minded. Because if you have like-minded, it's all about ideas. It's all about logic and being rational. It's not about the heart. And I think the heart matters first and foremost before you start thinking about anything else because so many things can go wrong when two people are not light-hearted. Agreed. I, I'm definitely for, I want to do life with people who are light-hearted. Uh, you don't have to agree with my political views, my religious views, but the heart, for me, heart, The character is extremely important. So thank you for sharing that. I agree. Human connection is important, as you mentioned, Lydia. So I don't want to shift gears, but I want to talk about money, money. I don't know if you remember that song. I can't sing it. It was like money, 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 money. (laughs) Okay. It's something I know a lot of us definitely wish we 
could have more of. I should say, I don't want to say all of us, but a good amount of us are looking to make more money and create more wealth for ourselves and other people so that we could actually make an impact. I want to ask you, first, what is your philosophy Lydia, on money, because you'll hear people say things like, oh, it's the root of all evil. It's the root of everything that's injurious. So what is your philosophy on money? I think mine is very simple. You need money to live. You need money to enjoy. And so you need money, period. I think that at the end of the day is what it comes down to. You need money. That's what it is. So Lydia, before I ask you further questions, why do you think money gets a bad rap though? Why, you know, you hear people say, oh no, I, I don't need it. I don't want the problem it causes. Why do you think that is, that people say that? I think money has been used in harmful ways. And I think that's probably part of it. But I think a lot of people have an unhealthy relationship with money. Because of that, they view it negatively. You know, like you said, people often say money is the root of all evil. They're misquoting that Bible verse, which says the love of money is the root of all evil. Because, again, I don't want to get into geopolitical conversations, but when you look at some of the decisions various nations make, the ways that they are able to generate income around the world, it has caused so many wars. And at the end of the day, it's because the love of money of a few people, if you look at the 1%, it's not all of them, but some of them are making money because of the poverty of others. They're making money from war, you know, and even if you think of human trafficking, you think of the arms trade, you think of drug trafficking, a lot of people are making money off of that. So I think ultimately... There's two things. People have witnessed the way that money has been used negatively. And then also people have a negative view of money due to a poor relationship with money. I definitely think you're right there. Because people obviously have misused and abused money, it has caused a lot of divides. But then also I think what you mentioned about our relationship with money, that also could facilitate us having a negative view of money. And even uh, recently I did some research because, you know, most people will say money is what causes the divorce and that's one of the main reasons. But when you look at the recent studies, it's not even in the top 10. You know, you have things like lack of commitment and fidelity, communication issues, substance abuse problems. Number 11 was listed on most research that was done recently on finance really being a cause for either, I don't want to say increase in divorce, but causing some rifts in marriages across the globe. So it is further down. So now I'm going to ask you, how do you believe money can be used for good? The simple act of making money so that you can live comfortably, so that you're not stressed, that is the first way that you can use money for good. Before you can think about anyone else, you need to make sure that you are good. And then beyond that, once you are good, then you can start thinking about other people because you don't want to give from a place of struggle because you're not really giving authentically you're giving because you feel pressured to or some kind of expectation to do so but what I want to see people do is giving from a place of abundance and to be able to do that you need to make sure that you are comfortable first and foremost I don't want to see people struggling 
I don't want to say you broke, unable to take care of yourself because you're giving your money out to charity, giving it to your pastor, whatever it may be, various organizations. You shouldn't be struggling. So first and foremost, take care of yourself financially. And that's what it means to love yourself financially. I like that idea because obviously filling your cup first and then that enables you to help other people. So I want to go to a quote that is by one of the Stoics. And I want you to tell me your take on this. Marcus Aurelius, to many of our listeners who would know him, he is the Roman emperor who was known, I think, as the last of the good emperors, a Stoic philosopher. He, like many of his fellow Stoic, believed or had this framework by which they lived their lives and believed that we could help others improve their life. So he said that the only wealth which you will keep forever is the wealth you have given away. So I just want to put that on the back of your last comment, which you said that you can't give or not necessarily that you can't give, but first take care of yourself in terms of creating wealth for yourself before you can give to others. But then we have a stoic who's saying the only wealth which you will keep forever is the wealth you have given away. So what is your take on that quote? Okay. So first, when I think of wealth, I think of abundance. I think of having more than enough. And I think of having an overflow. So with that overflow, you're giving to others. You are donating to causes. You're supporting people who might need it. And so that's in leaving a legacy, right? So when you're leaving a legacy, that's what people will remember you for. And so I think that that's probably what he meant by that. You know, when you think of there are certain philanthropists, they've died 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, but they're still remembered for the donations that they gave. You know, if you go to the States, for example, you see their names on all these different buildings they gave to libraries and other organizations, and that's what their legacy is. So when I think about that quote, I think about legacy and I think about using your money for good. That's going to outlive you. Definitely, because inherently, obviously, having wealth or having a lot of money is neither good nor bad. It's how you use those resources and what you do with them. I agree with you. First, actually, let's talk about your company. So Love Yourself Financially, you founded it in 2019. So it was just before COVID. If you could share your impetus for actually starting the company. And also, I want to know a little bit about the language. I know we talked a little bit about self-love and how it's tied into using money for good. But why love yourself financially as a company? Okay, so there's a few different elements that come in here. You know, working in finance with my day job, working in wealth advisory is definitely a man's world. And for multiple reasons, I was getting frustrated with it. And then that's one. Then two, I noticed that working with women, having meetings with women, they seem to be hesitant to invest. Having conversations with women made me see that the the approach needs to change. The way that we were trained and how to get people to invest is very male-centered. And then in having a conversation with one of my clients at that time, we were talking about women and wealth. You know, we're very passionate about that. And I just thought, you know what, let me host a session so I can teach women some of the basics about financial management, personal finances. And it was around February. 
So honestly, the reason for the name is let me just choose something fun, something kind of cheesy, something a little bit memorable for Valentine's Day. So that's where Love Yourself Financially comes from. So it was informing Love Yourself Financially that I switched my approach in how to educate women about loving themselves financially, about investing, about managing their finances. And since doing that, I've seen such an increase in how many women are now investing with me. They are less hesitant because I've been able to explain things to them in a way that resonates with them. Yeah, I have a question. What do you think accounts for the knowledge gap? Thank you for sharing the start of your company. And I love the idea because I told you love, actually two things I want. I want to slow down a bit. First, I love the title, Love Yourself Financially, because the theme of my year is love. I believe that all of us can do me personally, let me speak about myself, can do more in terms of giving, receiving love. So I love that you've used that title, Love Yourself Financially, and you surrounded it around uh, Valentine's Day, which is known as the Day of Love Worldwide. I want to go to the question now. Why do you think there is knowledge gaps? What do you think accounts for that knowledge gap between what women are told around wealth building and what men are told? Again, there's another deep question, Gina. There are so many levels to this one as well. I think generally the way society has been, women weren't working, women weren't managing the money in a lot of societies. It's always been male-focused. And then two, when you look at the way, even in movies, and then just generally overall, the way women are treated in marketing when it comes to money is women don't know what they're doing. Women are shopaholics. Women aren't bright enough to manage their finances and so on. And then on top of that, because everything is very male dominated in this industry, the way that men talk about money and the way that, you know, men teach each other how to invest is very different. Women are more relationship driven. So even if they want to work with an advisor or they want to figure out what their goals are, it's about looking at that First, they want to understand what their goals are before figuring out how they can invest towards that with men. Men just want to see the numbers doing well. It's a completely different approach when working with men. With men, for example, with my men clients, if I sit down with them, we do the calculations, this is how much you need, you know, let your money work for you and so on and so forth. They are much quicker to make a decision. With women, I found that when you have more of a conversation with them about the life that they want to have. And then it's like, okay, so the money that you have sitting in the bank, it can't be sitting in the bank. We need to be investing it so that you have enough money in five, 10, 20 years for the life that you want to have. So there's so many different reasons, but ultimately I think I have been able to switch the narrative around. And also I forgot about this one, but this one is really important is the lack of confidence. For whatever reason, women do not have confidence when it comes to personal finances and investing. And that even applies to the women who I can say objectively, when you look at their accounts, you look at their investments, they know what they're doing. They have made great financial decisions. They are also saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing or I don't understand how anything works. And it's surprising to me. So I think that that probably has as much of an impact as the other elements that I mentioned. I agree, Lydia. I don't want to call it imposter syndrome, but yeah, there there is something there around women not feeling that they have what it takes 
to manage their own finances and actually upskill themselves and financial planning. I definitely think that is something to unpack and definitely probably also needs further research. But I like what you said around a starting point. It for us could be looking at the life you want to have. So figuring out what that is, I like to do it month by month. What is it I need financially to support myself and my family, meaning my mom and my sister and some of my siblings that I'm supporting and go from there. But I want to go back to the knowledge gap because there's some different ideas out there on how women should approach building well. So Rachel Rogers, which you and I just briefly spoke about previously to starting this podcast, she is the author of Hello7. It's a company that's actually dedicated to help women build well. And she wrote a book that I actually listened to by audiobook, We Should All Be Millionaires, A Woman's Guide to Earning More, Building Wealth, and Gaining Economic Power. And I remember specifically one of the things that she says that we're told as women is that we need to save. And guys aren't given that same advice. And she said that's basically erroneous to say, oh, just skip your daily coffee at the coffee shop. And that's way how you save money. But it's about really finding avenues where you actually could create more wealth for yourselves. So whether it's selling some furniture you've had (laughs) stored in your apartment or trying to sell a service that you think you could offer to individuals, she says, are one of the ways we can create wealth. So I want to say, what are some of your takes? And she calls them million dollar decisions. What are some of your First, what is your take on her advice? And then what are some of your million dollar decisions you've made in the last year and recommend to our listeners? Yes, I do agree with Rachel, with everything that you have just mentioned. There was a time when I was giving that kind of erroneous advice because that's what a lot of experts were championing. And then eventually I realized, you know what? That is coming from a scarcity mindset. Save, save, save. And also spend less is more of a scarcity mindset. I need to shift towards more of an abundance mindset. And I think that was also part of my own personal growth. When you're thinking more abundantly, you're thinking of ways to increase your income. So that's why I have my three pillars. I think we'll talk about that in more detail later, but earn wealth is all about increasing your income. Maybe you have a job. Maybe your job isn't paying you enough. There are times when we can look at how to reduce some of your expenditure because you might be wasting money. But for the most part, if you realize that your job is not giving you enough income, how are we going to change that? That's the question. Because there's a lot of money out there. What are we doing about it? Where are we going to get that money from? Then once you have that additional income coming in, then we can be looking at the next pillar, which is build wealth. And that is about how to invest, multiply your money, multiply this money you're working so hard for. Now let it work for you. And then lastly, we can look at preserving that and looking at future planning. So I do agree with that, that women are often taught to save. There's a lot of women that I've, I've um, interacted with over the past few years. And when you ask them what kind of advice were you given, what was money like in your family growing up, they're often told to save, 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 but then not to invest. And I think that will impact the way that they manage their money and their relationship with money because they're not thinking abundantly. They might be thinking about enjoying life, sure, but you need money for that. And I don't want you to struggle. I don't want you to enjoy life so much now that you don't have enough money in the future. 
I want you to be able to visualize the kind of life that you do want to have. Dream about that life. Because when you dream for it, then you can plan for it and you can build wealth for it. That is great advice. We are told the same. Don't buy the expensive shoes you want. And I know we could definitely change that narrative. And I do want to look at your three pillars in a few minutes, because I know there are ways that we could create more options and possibilities for ourselves and our families. And I just talking about, I just want to divert for a second, have a small diversion. I remember when my great aunt was living, one of the things she told me when I was younger was save, I think it was like something like $15 just a week when I was working. And that was her whole thing, saving and putting it in the bank. And when she died, unfortunately, all the money was in the bank. It wasn't invested anywhere, but it was well over 200000 But it was just in the bank and it hadn't grown. And imagine if it had grown in the, I think she had been saving from, you know, when she was in her 20s. But imagine all the time if she had invested that in other different either annuities or other investment options, it could have grown exponentially. So I do want to go to your three pillars. So can we start with uh, increasing your income? What are some ideas there that we can give some of our individuals on increasing their income while working their day job? Yeah, it's unfortunate. I want to touch on your grandma first because yes, saving is fantastic. But like you said, there was an opportunity cost that was lost and that was the opportunity to work that money. You know, if she had invested that 200000 over, even in something that is very balanced over, I don't know, I don't know how old your grandma was when she passed away, but let's say she was even 80, you know, 60 years of growth lost. But then again, this is why we need that knowledge. We need that information. There is a certain group of people, the very group of people who are dominating the financial wealth industry. These are, you know, older white males. They know what they're doing. They have the information. So it's now time for the rest of us to use that information to grow wealth for ourselves. And so the first pillar for love yourself financially is earn wealth. And that's about increasing your income. If you're working a nine to five, the simplest way to increase your income is obviously asking for a raise, but make sure that you're actually providing value. You need to be able to go to your boss and say, these were my targets. I exceeded it by this much. And this is why I'm asking for a raise. And then the second thing is if for whatever reason, they're not willing to give you a raise, then jump ship. You don't owe them anything. You've done the work required to get your salary. That's as much loyalty as you own your company, that you owe to your company. If they're not willing to give you what you need, there are so many companies out there. Again, we're not making decisions out of fear. We're making decisions, smart decisions in a hopeful way. And then also think about the skills that you have and think about whether you can be freelancing or starting a side entrepreneurial venture while you're still at your day job. Because the skills that you have, someone's paying for for them from you. That's your employer. So why wouldn't someone else pay for that as you as a consultant or a freelancer? So again, ask for a raise, jump ship, start a a side business. Those are three things that you can look at while you are an employee or if you're someone who's looking for a job. It's interesting because Lydia, I'm sure you've done some research around this, even in terms of asking for a raise. The research is clear there that easily 80% of women, even though they feel underpaid, will never ask for a raise. 
and they've never asked for more money. But I like what you said. You asked for a raise, showing that you can provide more value to the company. Um, but in the same research that I looked at, men have absolutely no problem, no issues asking for a pay raise and actually do it routinely more often than women do. I don't know if that's a question of self-worth there, not feeling the, a little bit of like what I mentioned about the imposter syndrome. There are a lot of women who won't or hesitant to ask for a raise. I think one is the confidence factor. I'm sure you maybe have heard that there's, there was some research done that said women don't apply for jobs unless they can tick off everything on the job description. So they feel like they're 100% qualified, whereas men will apply for the job even if they're 60% qualified. And so I think that has to do with confidence. And then men from a young age are groomed to be go-getters and achievers and to go for whatever it is they want when women aren't given that kind of life advice from childhood. And then lastly, I also read something interesting recently, and it said that there might be some generational I don't know if you want to call it trauma in this case, because women weren't working for the longest time. So it's almost as if women are willing to accept whatever is being offered to them. Whereas for men, they know that they are the providers. And so they need to be earning more to take care of their family. Even if they're not married, even if they don't have children, they still have this kind of more of aggressive mindset for this reason. So this might be it. I don't know, there may be other reasons as well, but from some of the research that I have read, these are some of the explanations that have been given. I don't want women to hold back and lose out because they're shy. There's so many resources out there now that will allow them to present and negotiate for a raise. So if that's you and you're in that situation, I want to encourage you, go get the raise. What's the worst I can say is no. And if they do say no, that's not a reflection on who you are as a person. That just means most likely they don't value you and that you need to jump ship and go somewhere where you're valued. Yeah, no, you, you bring up some valid points. I definitely think it's related to the confidence factor. So um, women undervaluing themselves for whatever reason. Men, as you mentioned, groom to be go-getters and achieve more. And we know from a young age they're encouraged early on to set goals and because they have to be, quote unquote, the provider of the family. I remember reading or I haven't read her book, but um, Sarah, I think it's Lash Shiver, hopefully I'm pronouncing her name uh, right. Um, she wrote, co-authored actually, Why Women Don't Ask. And she says the big problem is the same things we've talked about. Like women want to be seen in a certain light, that they're not demanding, they're not pushy. So they want to be as accommodating as possible. So they're afraid to ask for the raise. And I know even in myself, I probably haven't asked for a raise in the last few years, but I think for me, it's been more of a cultural thing uh, here in the UAE, but I've changed that. So, so thank you for the push, Lydia. I appreciate it. So let's move to your second pillar, build wealth. Build wealth is very straightforward. It's all about multiplying your income. It's all about letting your money work for you. Like I said earlier, you're working so hard for the money that you're earning. Imagine if you had the choice to choose between working harder for more money, as in putting your time and labor into working for more money, or you let your investments work for you. You had to choose one or the other, and it's strictly about making more money. 
I'm pretty sure you would choose the latter option. Because if you can make more money by doing nothing else than putting some money into some investments, why wouldn't you choose that? And imagine if you're also working, making money on your own, and then also making money by growing it in whatever investments that you choose, then that is double. And the compounding effect of that is phenomenal. So what options are available for you? It varies, but I tell everyone you should be invested in the stock market at the very least because the stock market is an easy entry opportunity where you don't need a lot of money to get started and it allows you to make money in the way that rich people are making money. The wealthy out there are already making money this way. So why struggle when you can learn from other people who are already doing it this way? There are a few other ways that people like to look at for investing, not just the stock market, but you can look at investing in real estate. So that could be residential, commercial, property, maybe even industrial or land. These are two of the common ways you can invest in a business, okay? Creating your own business and getting it to the point where you're able to hand it over to someone to manage and grow for you. But if I want to just stick with these three, I don't want to get into too many different options, but to keep it very simplified, one, the stock market, there's no reason why if you're listening to this and you're not invested in the stock market and you know you have some cash available, there's no reason why you shouldn't be invested in the stock market at all. Real estate's a little bit different because you need to look at a lot of factors and you may need to have a large down payment available. And then starting a company may not be for everyone, but it could be the right way for you. You never know. So again, for building wealth, I just want to focus on these three for today. The stock market, everyone should be in the stock market some way. And then two, real estate, and then three, a company. That's good advice. And just real quickly, before we go to your third pillar, uh, preserving wealth, any stocks in particular right now you would say that individuals should actually invest in? So that's tricky. I want to tread carefully on giving specific financial advice here because I need to know that individuals financial situation and what their goals are and what their risk profile is. So it's not as easy as just giving you stocks. But then also as a side note, I focus primarily on investing in funds rather than individual stocks. When you're dealing with funds, you are automatically diversifying and reducing your volatility to the market. But if I want to focus on funds instead of stocks, if I was going to recommend funds, I would focus on this one fund. It has an excellent track record. It's the S&P 500, which is the top 500 U.S. companies. And that just gives us an overall gauge as well as to how the economy in the U.S. is doing. So if I was just going to recommend one fund, that would be it. Again, don't just get up and invest in this. But you need to do a little bit of research and understand whether or not it fits in with your bigger picture and your financial goals. 
I should have changed my wording. I did mean funds and not stock because you're exactly right. You have to look at someone's actual, what they have in terms of their finances. And what you mentioned in terms of S&P, that's exactly what my friend had mentioned. Um, this is a mutual friend, not a mutual friend, but a friend of mine who was just giving me some advice. He mentioned index funds specifically, just because I think those tend to do outperform the majority of managed mutual funds. And he did mention the S&P 500. But I'd have a lot more research to do around that myself. So thank you, Lydia. And then let's go to your third pillar, preserving wealth. All right. So preserving wealth is more about protecting your assets. That's where we're talking about life insurance. We're talking about making sure that if you want to, you're leaving money for your children, you're leaving money for whatever beneficiaries you might have, that all your documentation is in order, depending on what country you might be living in, this would vary. And then also looking at inheritance tax as well. So it's about protecting the assets that you've worked so hard to build over the years. And Lydia, can you share with us, our listeners today, where they can find you? We're going to go to some questions, but this is a good segue in terms of helping direct individuals to where they could find support from you. So can you list your social media platforms and your websites, please? You can find me pretty much everywhere. So I'm on Snapchat, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter as Lydia Lid. So that's L-Y-D-I-A-L-Y-Z-Z-Z. Let me take that again. L-Y-D-I-A-L-Y-Z-Z-Z. Last time I said Z to someone, they had no idea what I was talking about. So that's how we say Z in Canada. And then you can also check my website, which is loveyourselffinancially.com. So you can find me there. Send me a DM. Let me know that you heard me on the podcast and I would love to hear your thoughts on this session. Thank you, Lydia. We'll repeat those at the end of the show as well. So I want to ask you, because you've talked about obviously doing a lot of work, a lot of inner work, and you've mentioned working with a coach and also listening to podcasts. Are there any specific podcasts you currently listen to that you'd recommend? And also any impactful books that you've read on wealth management and financial literacy that you would recommend to our listeners? So for books, wealth-related books that I love, The Richest Man in Babylon, and I'm almost finished reading We Should All Be Millionaires by Rachel Rogers, who we've mentioned in the podcast already. Her book is amazing, and I do believe in the title, just because sitting down with people and looking at planning for their retirement, that alone shows me that everyone will need to be a millionaire because for the life that they want to have, if they're living off the income, they're going to need investments and assets worth at least a million dollars by the time they retire. And so Rachel also has a podcast called Hello 7, which is, it's been good. I've just started listening to that. Another podcast that I really do like is Redefining Wealth. That is Patricia Washington. You know, these two ladies are kind of like my online mentors from a distance. In terms of personal development and personal growth, Boundaries is a good one. And then also Who You Were Meant to Be. These are two books that I've loved. And the last one I'm going to throw in here is Think and Grow Rich, which is another classic. And it will push you and challenge you to strive more for yourself. Thank you, Lydia. Some of them I've read and or listened to, but I don't know who you are meant to be and the lean startup. 
So those I will definitely delve into. So thank you for adding to my library. We have definitely a lot more questions to ask you because there's some things I want to unpack with you. Thank you for sharing those books that we can, and also platforms that we could read and listen to pertaining to building wealth and living our best lives. I know living an abundant and extraordinary life is important to you. What would you say currently you are working on to continue living an abundant life? What would you say is of important value to you currently? Oh, that is such a good question. I think it's being more conscious generally about decisions that I'm making, making sure that I'm making decisions that are right for me, even if other people may not like it or may not understand it or may not understand it and not feeling like I need to explain to anyone else what I'm doing with my time for my life. I think for me right now, that is my biggest priority is just realigning and reprioritizing myself and making sure that I am good, first and foremost. And I think for me, that comes with being present. So I talked about being conscious, but being present and not, as someone who is a planner and wants to plan for the future, not thinking too much about the future. So it's kind of a bit contradictory because I don't want to obsess in planning for the future and making sure that things are aligned with that. But I also do want to make sure I'm enjoying the present. If I'm focused and thinking too much about the future, then I won't be able to enjoy the present now. And that's where worry and anxiety comes in. So I think for me, those would be the three things that are my priority in this season. Thank you. Prioritizing ourselves, you can never go wrong there. So Lydia, I want to unpack a little bit of what you said, because it seems as if you've done a shift. And I know you said, you've mentioned that you've worked with a coach. In doing your inner work, what is it about either your journey that caused you to make a shift and say, hey, I need to step back a little bit. I need to start prioritizing myself and not what other people want me to do. Well, I think it was not directly related, but I think the whole process of getting divorced a couple of years ago set me in that direction. So it it pushed me to do a lot more self-reflection, working with the therapist and just reading a lot of books. And I think for me, that was the main shift. And in that process, doing that whole emotional healing, mental healing, and then as part of that, then eventually... Still in the healing process, but then there was a shift where I was like, okay, I need to get my life together. You know, I'm 34 and not that I'm saying, you know, you need to look at your checklist and there are dates and deadlines to accomplish things. But I was just thinking very generally, okay, I'm 34. What do I want? What do I want for myself? Where would I like to see myself in the next year? And that forced me to put my head down, re-strategize. And then go about things slightly differently. And I know some of my friends have noticed, some of them have made comments in a positive way. I mean, some others have made not so positive comments, but we don't care about what they think. Because at the end of the day, I'm doing me. I'm not doing anything to hurt someone else. If if they are disappointed or upset that I have not prioritized them in this season in my life, that's unfortunately, I have to say, it's not my problem, you know, because... I am focused and I'm doing what I got to do for myself. 
my good friends have been understanding and they know what's going on and they're not questioning or doubting or taking it personally or taking offense to it. So that has been a major realization for me, I guess, in the past year or less than a year even, because it's all, it's been part of the whole healing journey. But then now I'm really, really and truly all about myself. And like I said, initially, when I put myself first, then I can show up better for others. And that's family, friends, clients, and so on. So that's why it's important for me to put myself first, because the impact of that, the natural impact of that is that others will be better off because I am working in my element, in my space, and I'm, you know, 100% doing what I need to do for myself. And when others see that, they will be impacted one way or another just by me being myself, being present, living my life. Kind of like my aura should reflect and impact them in that way. Thank you for sharing that. Although I haven't seen you in the beginning part of your journey, it sounds like you're well on your way. Lydia, I want to ask you though, had you suffered from FOPO, which is a fear of other people's opinions previously? And what, if you had, what caused you to make that shift? I've actually never heard that term before. So I want to say that I didn't, but I have a friend of mine who's also a coach and she has been fantastic for me during this whole healing process as well. And there are times where she would call me out and say, that's, you're working as a people pleaser. That decision is made as a people pleaser. And so I would love to say that, no, I do not suffer from FOPO, but maybe there are some ways that I did and I didn't recognize it. But I think now more than ever, I'm not. And so it's been interesting because in this process, I think also from the comment my friend made, I don't even remember the situation that happened, but now I've just had to take more time to think twice about decisions that I'm making, making sure that I'm doing it for me and not for other people. Thank you for sharing that and for expressing your vulnerability there. Lydia, as you know, this podcast is about empowering and supporting young girls and women. And this past October, I'm not sure if you were aware, was International Day of the Girl. And this is an opportunity to support young girls and increase worldwide awareness of gender equality that's faced by girls based on their gender. Um, what would you say is something that we all can do to advance young girls and women, their growth? And what do you believe we could currently do in our space, in, in your industry, I should say, in your industry, to invest more in young girls? Overall, I would say, you know, men need to leave girls alone because that has been an issue from the beginning, from for years. I don't know any woman that hasn't been harassed or worse by men in some way or another. Um, a couple of days ago, there's some post on Twitter about a girl who had applied for a scholarship or some kind of mentorship opportunity and was talking to the guy in his DMs, and next thing you know, he's basically hitting on her. And this is something I have experienced. I know other women who have experienced it as well. So overall, giving women opportunities or giving girls opportunities without trying to get something back, something in return. Okay, in this case, it was something sexual from this guy, from other women, just being open and willing to bring women in under your wing, because there's so many women, so many girls out there who, unfortunately, they don't have a safe space. So they need to be empowered. And then giving them that empowerment includes 
teaching them, giving them knowledge, because we know knowledge is power. If they're in an environment where they don't know better or they know that certain behaviors are acceptable, we need to show them that actually it's not. Okay, so empowerment means protecting women from male predators. There are women predators too, but male predators out there, but then also mentoring women. I keep saying women, but they are young women, young women and girls, mentoring them, bringing them under our wing, empowering them, giving them knowledge, open, opening opportunities, opening doors for them, surrounding them with other girls that they can grow together with, you know? So I think there's so many things that we can do practically. There's so many things that I would like to do more of. I think in general, just by doing so, we are empowering these girls to be empowered women. And so it starts from when they are young. You know, I'm sure, Dina, you can think of, I can think of so many situations I found myself in where I didn't know how to handle it. Like I know what I didn't want to do or the way I didn't want it to go, but I didn't know how to, to navigate the situation. Thinking about that and thinking about all the other girls out there who, again, they're in, in situations where there's a power dynamic at play. So we need to protect them. So, yes, protect these young girls. I think for me, that is that's very important. I agree. Starts at a young age, supporting them, exploring them to opportunities. Education, I think, is definitely one of the key. I'm an advocate for educating young girls and teaching them life skills that they'll need, you know, now and for the rest of their lives. I know you're from Ghana. So are there any advancements that you have seen over the years? I know you haven't been back maybe in a couple of years and you haven't lived there in a while, but any advancements you're seeing regarding women empowerment in your hometown? I have seen quite a lot. I've seen a lot more events specifically geared to women. I'm seeing a lot more women take charge. It's hard to say since I haven't really been on the ground, but I've also been seeing women, a lot more women, even in Ghana, getting in touch with me about investing. So that just means, you know, women taking charge of their finances as well. And I've been seeing more conversations being had about money. I've been seeing shifts in views about money as well. And so I think my perspective is a bit limited since I haven't lived there in, you know, over five years and I didn't grow up there. So it's also slightly different. But as someone who lived there for a good seven years, I can compare when I first lived there to now. And I have seen some changes, good changes. That's good to hear. I haven't followed what's happening in Africa, but I know um, Ghana in particular, just as, as I mentioned previously, before we started this podcast, just has done, has, has had a lot of strides in all aspects of its life, of its um, industries in terms of just building a growing middle class, attention to education. So there's been a significant growth in the previous years. Before we wrap up, I want to ask the question we ask of all guests. So what is the impact you wish to have on women here in the UAE and across the globe? Oh, my impact is quite simple. I want to see women investing, building wealth and living the life that they want. And I don't want money to be the reason that they're not able to do so. Thank you. That is simple and direct and to the point. <laughs> so women investing and being able to live the life that they want to live and money not 
obviously impeding them from leading that abundant life. So what are you working on currently, Lydia? Um, So you've talked about your self-growth here. You've talked about some of what you're helping women to do in terms of their financial goals and independence. So what are you striving for? You mean me personally? Yes, you personally. Outside of your, well, it could be tied into your company, but what are you striving for? Like, where do you see, if I I could say, we're going to have a conversation five years from now, where do you see yourself? Okay. So I would love to be in a situation where, I mean, I am currently in building phase for myself. So I am building wealth for myself and I would love to be in a situation in five years from now where I'm not thinking twice about money. I am financially well off to the point where I'm able to focus on other things. So yes, I'll have a business that's running and thriving, but I'll be able to, again, from a place of abundance, still have an impact and look at other opportunities to support women in building wealth, whether that is, you know, providing scholarships, you know, supporting women by investing in their businesses and so on. I would love to be doing so much more for women in their journey towards building wealth, which isn't necessarily what Love Yourself Financially is all about right now. But for me as a person, I would love to have a bigger impact in this whole space of women and wealth. That's a nice vision. Is there anything, Lydia, before we wrap up that we didn't talk about that you would like to mention and or talk about? The thing is, you know, when you're talking about wealth, there's so many different aspects that can be addressed. And so I think for today's conversation, we've already uncovered so much that I feel like we should just keep it at what we have discussed so far. But then again, there are so many different elements that we can look into Maybe having another conversation about on another day. I just want to ask you one more question before we wrap up. Are there any women who have been instrumental in your journey that you would like to give credit to? So I know you mentioned Kai, Yvonne, um, your online community. Any other women you would like to mention? Because this is a women podcast, not necessarily for women, but it's about the stories of women and trying to inspire and motivate others and empower them as well. Oh, boy. So I... Here's where I'll shout out my online mentors who I kind of appreciate and like from a distance. I don't know them personally, but Patricia, Patrice Washington, and then Rachel Rogers, of course. These are women who are doing things that are in line with what I want to do. And so they are online mentors for me. I have a friend, a very good friend of mine who has just been a good source of encouragement and a source of deeper reflection and someone who has just pushed me and challenged me to rethink some of my own beliefs and why I do believe them. Um, And then there are just so many of my friends who have been amazing, supportive, a listening ear, you know, when I want to rant about who knows what. And everyone who is a part of Love Yourself Financially, to all the women, and there are some guys who are on my mailing list and who give me support, but all the women who have been a part of this journey, who have been growing with me and with Love Yourself Financially, I am looking forward to three years. In February, will be three years of life. That's Love Yourself Financially for short. Three years of life. And I would love to do something to celebrate those three years. So watch this space and you'll see something happening in Feb. Yes, we will be watching this space. So thank you, Lydia. We really appreciate the conversation today. Thank you for taking your time. 
we like what you're doing around supporting um, individuals who are vulnerable and those who are disadvantaged. Thank you for talking to us about how we could transform our mindset how we could get out of our comfort zone, unpack that myth of scarcity and live full and abundant lives. And more importantly, how we could use money as a force for good to help ourselves and others. So thank you, Lydia. I really appreciate our time. I'm definitely going to be hitting you up because I have a lot to learn about wealth management and finances as well. So thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Gina. I'm looking forward to talking to you again on the podcast and then as a sidebar to talk about building wealth for yourself. Yes, I will be in touch this week. So thank you, Lydia, and have a good night. Music on this podcast is provided by Alexander Kirschdisch. The composition is titled Beautiful Spheres, which was released on April 3rd, 2019. Alexander Kirstisch can be found on Facebook at Alexander Kirstisch and on Instagram at Alexander Kirstisch underscore official.